I'm Kerry Colonisi, the Edward B. Schills Professor of Law and the Director of the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And I am delighted to be here this morning with Richard Cordray, who served as the first director of the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, a position he held from 2012 to 2017. He's visiting at the law school as a distinguished policy fellow, and we're delighted to have him with us for the podcast today. Previously, Cordray had served as the Ohio Attorney General, as well as the state Solicitor General and Treasurer. And in 2018, he served as the Democratic candidate for the Ohio governor's race. Delighted to have you here, Mr. Cordray. Can you start by telling us what were the concerns about financial institutions and their treatment of consumer lending that gave rise to the passage of the Dodd-Frank legislation and the creation of the CFPB? Sure. The most notable impetus for financial reform was the breakdown in the economy in 2007 through 2009, where essentially the housing market and the market for mortgage loans got so off the, the equilibrium track that it ended up breaking the economy. There was a great deal of irresponsible lending at that time. There were a lot of practices that were allowed to go on in the mortgage market that led to a lot of people losing homes to foreclosure and defaulting on loans. That irregularity in that market bled through financial instruments to Wall Street and ended up freezing the credit markets in our economy. And that led immediately to the catastrophe of the deep recession that we suffered in 2009, where unemployment spiked above 10%. Millions of people lost their jobs, millions of people lost their homes, and virtually everyone lost considerable savings at that time. And it was thought in Congress that there needed to be reforms to head this off from ever happening again. Obviously, there are breakdowns in the economy from time to time, generally not of that magnitude. The only other situation within the last century that rivaled it was the Great Depression, which you could argue was worse, maybe only because there was no social safety net at that time and because we ended up entering World War II, which cured the economic ills uh, of that era uh, eventually through a very hard evolution in our economic uh, institutions. So this was a major significant event in our society, the biggest economic difficulty that we had faced in our lifetimes, probably the biggest one that people will face in their lifetimes, even those at a young age now. That's all. Uh, and with reverberations that have continued to affect our society, both politically and economically uh, over the ensuing decade and continuing. So Congress felt that they needed to institute broad, a broad package of financial reforms. That was the Dodd-Frank Act in the end, and it overhauled a significant number of financial markets, some of them very arcane, some of them as homely as the consumer finance markets that people operate in every day that use household credit, mortgages, credit cards, auto loans, student loans, and the like. And that was the part of the Dodd-Frank Act that... I ended up participating in because they created a new agency in the federal government called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, whose 
role it was to focus on the issues of household finance and how better to protect consumers and support consumers so that they didn't suffer these personal tragedies in their own families and that the economy didn't suffer the aggregate of those tragedies, which, as I say, ended up breaking the macro economy to many people's surprise at that time. So tremendous uh, financial crisis, uh, extensive personal uh, and uh, crises for for families across America led to the Dodd-Frank Act. Now, that was passed in 2010, right. and you officially started as the first director of the Bureau in 2012. What went on in that intervening period of time, and what what was the CFPB like then when you arrived there? I mean, what, what's it, in other words, what's it like to start a new agency of this magnitude? So after a difficult struggle in the Congress, Congress enacted the Dodd-Frank Act in July of 2010, and it was signed into law at that point by President Obama. The complexity of the task of starting a brand new government agency from scratch was such that the way the legislation was designed, the new agency did not get off the ground for another year. The agency was not authorized to do any of the things that it was legally authorized to do eventually. Uh, during that first year, people were simply meant to start to join the agency and build it up uh, into uh, a, a working, functioning organization that could take on the tasks that were set in the law. So from July 2010 to July 2011, the, the Bureau was not itself an independent agency at that point. It was a part of the Treasury Department. Uh, the people who, who were involved called themselves the CFPB implementation team because there was not actually a CFPB yet. And I joined the Bureau in January of 2011, was recruited there by Elizabeth Warren, who was the interim person helping to stand up the new uh, agency. And I joined originally as the chief of enforcement which is a role that I fulfilled for the first year I was there. About six months into that role, the president made a decision about who he would nominate to be the director of the agency as it got underway, and he chose to nominate me for that position, which led to a bit of a saga because my confirmation in the Senate, which had to approve the nomination for me to be fully appointed, was blocked for the next two years. There was a lot of resistance, as you can imagine, from the financial industry to this new agency that was going to try to bring them down to size, and this was one of the ways, one of the first ways that that manifested itself in trying to block a, a full, fully confirmed director, which it was thought would hamper our ability to exercise our authorities until that could be achieved. So that was the uh, saga that then unfolded. Uh, but for that first year, I was not directing the agency. I was building up the enforcement arm of the agency, which turned out to be one of the very important pieces of the new bureau. We ended up uh, with the authority to enforce the law against big banks and financial companies of all sizes. And we ended up taking dozens and dozens, like probably hundreds of enforcement actions over the next six years while I was director and 
recovering $12 billion for 30 million Americans over the course of those actions. So that work was very significant. And are those actions ones that you were able to take under existing law, under the Dodd-Frank Act itself, under regulations that the CFPB issued, all of the above? Those actions were authorized under the Dodd-Frank Act. Mm -hmm. Some of them might have been authorized before. Of course, there would not have been a CFPB to bring those actions. And the banking agencies who were on the scene at the time before there became an agency devoted specifically to focusing on consumers generally was, was, were not aggressive about bringing enforcement actions of that type. Theirs was more of a regulatory relationship with the banks. You could argue there was an inherent conflict of interest there. This is something that has been noted around the world. It's the Twin Peaks theory of financial regulation that's been pretty well adopted in most Western countries with Western economies now that there should be separate regulation of the banks in the interest of the banks to keep them safe and sound and functioning, but sort of looking out for the banks to make sure that we don't suffer the ultimate consumer harm of having a bank go belly up and people lose their deposits or in in the modern world, the government be forced to cover those deposits through its existing insurance mechanisms. But instead, there would be a separate agency that would focus on the welfare of consumers, that is the bank's customers rather than the bank itself. It was thought that by separating those two functions, we would get better consumer protection and ultimately better customer service by the financial companies of the individual people who, all of us, who use those products. And the uh, the first peak of the banking safety and soundness regulation, that's what the Federal Reserve, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, uh, state institutions? All of the above. The banking regulators, and it's a fragmented system, it just grew up historically, not through some logical theoretical concept. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, actually the Treasury Department, of course, started with the beginnings of the Republic Mm -hmm. and had some authority over financial regulation and obviously financial affairs. Revenues and tariffs were a big part of uh, the financing and taxes, of course. That's always been part of the Treasury Department's role. During the Civil War, when the issue of financing the war came up, that was the time that the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency was created within the Treasury Department and had the authority to regulate banks and and actually was, was involved with the issuance of the first paper money by the federal government at that time. After a banking panic in 1907, it was thought that we needed to have better regulation of the banks nationally. Of course, America has always had a love-hate relationship with banks. There was the first U.S. bank that was then eliminated by the Congress, and the second U.S. bank and the battle over that. You know, if you remember Andrew Jackson days, and, and again, people worried about the financial power of the New York moneyed interests. In 1907, there was a bank panic that was only resolved when the bankers themselves stepped in, there was not enough power in the federal government to address the issue, and that led to the Federal Reserve Act under Woodrow Wilson, which led to a different regulatory system for, for many banks and for monetary policy and, and uh, uh, financial policy. They existed alongside the OCC, And then during the Depression, when many people lost their money in the banks because many banks went defunct at that time, that's when the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Mm -hmm. the FDIC, uh, popularly known, was created. And it also had the authority to regulate banks and also to insure the deposits of all banks. 
But as it happens, and this is not, as I say, logical and doesn't make sense other than as a matter of how the history evolved, the banks in this country are regulated by banking agency. It could be the OCC. They regulate thousands of banks. It could be the Federal Reserve. They regulate thousands of banks. It could be the FDIC. They regulate thousands of banks. Or it could be state regulators. If you have a state charter, you may be regulated, for example, by the Pennsylvania superintendent of banks. Often you're regulated by more than one of those. And of course, what the Dodd-Frank Act was doing was on top of all of that regulation, adding a new regulator, the Consumer Bureau, which the banks did not want, which they detested, and which they fought pretty strenuously for the first several years. So you're coming in to a highly regulated environment already, sort of the new kid on the block, so to speak, but also in an environment in which there's tremendous resistance, as you say, from many of the banks, certainly from many members of Congress who didn't favor the Dodd-Frank Act or the creation of the CFPB. Lots of politically contentious issues that you're facing. And you're at the same time trying to build a new agency from scratch? How does one actually uh, accomplish that? I think you uh, laid out the challenge pretty well. We were coming into a crowded space of other agencies, sort of muscling in on their turf. Of course, we weren't muscling of our own initiative. It was Congress who had dictated that we would now exist and we would have authority. We would take authority away from the Federal Reserve in various respects and we would cut into the authority of each of the banking agencies. And there's no question that that legislation was an implicit rebuke of the existing banking agencies as not having sufficiently looked out for consumers and fallen down on the job. Now, again, arguably that wasn't their highest priority. It clearly wasn't, and they had conflicting priorities. But it was, it was clearly, if, you, if you're reforming to make the system better, it means you thought it was worse before. And that was felt as an insult and as a, a negative by those agencies. At the same time, what happened was politically, the Congress that passed the Dodd-Frank Act, which had Democratic majorities in both the House and Senate, and the bill passed very narrowly, uh, squeaked through, led as part of the reaction to the financial crisis of 2009 and the high unemployment, even though that had begun to occur under President George W. Bush, it unfolded, carried on through under President Obama's first, first year or two. And that led to a political earthquake in 2010 where the Republicans uh, gained control of the House. That was the Tea Party movement. And so suddenly the Congress that had passed Dodd-Frank was no longer the Congress that was in. And there were many people who had come in who were opposed to Dodd-Frank and to anything that smacked of big government or more government, anything that smacked of intervening and interfering with the free market. And in this case, also anything that was going to intrude on the entrenched financial interests of the powerful banks and big financial companies who tended to be aligned with those political forces. So we did face a significant political challenge. We had the authority to build this agency. We had the funding to build this agency. So we went ahead, but it was always within a thicket of criticism and negative uh, reaction and opposition and resistance within the Congress now, focused in the Congress. I suppose in some ways as a leader of an entity like that, there can be an, 
uh, a way of building an esprit de corps, I suppose, if everybody <laughs> seems to be against you, uh, then uh, you just have to be much more resolute. Looking back on what was nearly six years at the helm of the CFPB, what would you say were the most uh, important accomplishments that the Bureau made during that time? So we created a new agency with a mission that Congress had given us, a very specific mission to look out for 320 million Americans because every American is a consumer and each of us uh, uses household credit products, credit cards, mortgages, loans of all kinds. And our job was to try to rebalance the marketplace so that people's interests, the interests of the individual, not just the big companies, were represented, heard, responded to, and that there was a, a seat at the table. And we did that in a number of ways. We created a mechanism for individuals to raise individual complaints to us and get them fixed. Over my time there, we took in a million three hundred thousand individual complaints and worked to fix those. We took enforcement actions against patterns of problems that we saw at big companies. Uh, for example, actions we took to stop the misleading and deceptive marketing of credit card add-on products ended up saving consumers, returning billions of dollars to consumers and saving them billions more in the future so that they were not being subjected to those practices. We instituted regulatory reforms in the mortgage market to make it safer so that many of the things that happened that brought down the economy before 2008 could not be replicated in the future. For example, it was common practice in that era to lend uh, mortgages to people buying homes on a no documentation basis, didn't have to prove anything about their income or their assets. It, these mortgages were being sold on the glib presumption that it didn't matter what the borrower's financial condition was because as long as the asset would maintain its value and it was thought the housing prices had been steadily rising since World War II and therefore they were always going to rise, those kinds of assumptions are often uh, very hazardous in the economic realm. Uh, they can be true for a while, but they're likely not to be true in perpetuity, and this was the time when that worm had turned. So we did require that mortgages had to have documentation, and in fact, you had to, the lender had to document that the borrower had a reasonable ability to repay that mortgage regardless of whether the house went up in value or down in value, and therefore on the basis of the borrower's income and assets. These, these were things that we did to try to safeguard the economy against the kind of excesses that had broken it. And the important thing to know is that when you break the economy, it's not just people who got irresponsible loans who are hurt by that. It's everybody else as well. Millions of people lost their jobs. Many of them had nothing to do with mortgage lending, did not have irresponsible loans. They were just fallout. They were casualties in the economic collapse. And virtually everyone in the country lost savings. And then depending on how you had uh, gone about saving your money, maybe you recovered, maybe you didn't. If your savings were in the stock market and if you had the stomach to remain in the stock market, eventually much of that recovered. If your savings were in the value of your home and you lost your home or you had to sell your home when, when it had lost value, you perhaps never recovered that. And many people have been dislocated 
by the effects of this, and in particular, wealth inequality in the country has grown enormously in the wake of the financial crisis. So these are these are reasons why it's not just a matter of helping individual consumers or helping consumers who maybe also should be taking more responsibility for themselves, but trying to safeguard a broader economic mechanism that we all rely on and that we all are affected by uh, in different ways. So some of the reforms that you put in place probably sound to most Americans like just good common sense. Many people may wonder, well, why weren't those uh, requirements for disclosure of mortgage terms, for example, already in place? So I do think a lot of the reforms we put in place have an aspect of common sense. Good reforms do. Uh, And I've been asked the question you just asked in various versions over the years. And as to the question of why, if these things seem like common sense, they weren't in place before, I think because before people just assumed that they could count on the financial companies to use their own common sense and make sound choices. And that was an assumption. It turned out to be wrong. And therefore, regulation was put in place to ensure that these common sense precepts would be followed, such as you would have to make a reasonable assessment that the borrower could repay a loan before you made the loan. Now, let's, let's stop and examine that one in particular just for a moment. You would think, as you say, that that's common sense and you wouldn't need to mandate that. If I'm lending you money... Of course I should want to make a reasonable assessment you will repay that money because if you don't, then I am the loser on the loan I just made. I've I've lent you money and I'm not going to get it back. So again, you might think, why do you need to have a regulation to do that? Any lender would do that and that would be sensible. But in the run-up to the crisis, in the greed and the delusions of that uh, market at that time, it was not the case that uh, lenders felt the need to do that. They felt the value of the asset would hold up, and so they didn't need to pay close attention to the borrower's ability to repay. At the same time, they were able to take the loans they'd made and sell them on to someone else. They were selling them on to Wall Street investors who were repackaging them into uh, complicated and exotic financial instruments and reselling them in tranches that were being revalued. And so the person who made the original loan didn't really have to feel responsible for it in the long run. As long as they could knew they could sell it pretty quickly, then they washed their hands of it and it didn't matter anymore to them. What happened was that the people on Wall Street who felt that this was a winning bet on mortgage loans were not close enough to appreciate that the, mor- the underwriting standards for loans were deteriorating so badly that what was being sold to them didn't have the value that they thought they had. And ironically, it's the financial geniuses on Wall Street who ended up most badly miscalculating this whole mess. And as you say, they were assuming that the housing market was just booming constantly. Prices would keep going up. And as long as that happened, this risk really wouldn't be manifested. As long as the music played, uh, (laughs) everyone could dance. And then when the music stopped, there weren't enough chairs for everyone. Yes, that's essentially what happened. How are we doing today? Are there still important risks to consumers or to the financial industry that you worry about? that regulators should worry about? It's a fairly complicated question because we're really talking about a number of different markets. If you're talking about the mortgage market, which is the biggest consumer finance market, it's about $10 trillion at any given point, biggest consumer financial market in the history of the world. I would say that that market has been safeguarded by the measures we put in place. 
Now, having said that, the mortgage market is a bit of a myth. That is an assumption about a national market when, in fact, housing and and mortgage finance really is done area by area around the country, and they can vary greatly from one another. What's going on in Phoenix may be very different from what's going on in Philadelphia at any given time. But I think that the general framework that we put in place has been helpful, and the mortgage market has recovered uh, quite well from the collapse that occurred 10 years ago. It's been pretty steady. Prices are actually up, up at high levels again, but people don't feel the same risk, and there's a lot of home equity that's been built up over the years. Now, if you're going to other markets, the credit card market, I think, also has improved dramatically, again, because of new laws and new regulations that cleaned up a lot of sharp practices that hurt people for a number of years in the credit card markets. And I would say that's one of the markets that has improved the most. The student loan market is a very difficult one, and student loan debt is growing at a feverish pace around this country, and we have not worked out the public policy issues in terms of cost of education, importance of education, how much cost people should take on, how it should be repaid, how it should be managed. Those issues uh, are crying out for more attention and I would say are, are a big problem. And student loan debt has grown enormously. It's now exceeds $1.5 trillion. And it was just in the early days of the Bureau that uh, we were noting that it had first crossed the $1 trillion threshold. So that's just five or six years ago. Auto loans, there's a lot of uh, blinking red lights these days in the auto loan market. The duration of loans has increased. So people are taking out a loan that might exceed the, the time they own the car. So they're going to end up owing at the end of it without the car having to get another one. The cost of loans and access to loans has been loose in that market, and I would say that's a concern. There are other markets. The payday lending market is an interesting market, an odd market that exists in about two-thirds of the states. It does not exist at all in one-third of the states and has been a model of very high-cost short-term loans for people that we at the Bureau had found to be very problematic and also is not based on an ability to repay model and uh, causes a lot of harm to a lot of consumers, no doubt helps some consumers. But we had adopted a regulation to limit the payday lending practices, and that is a bone of contention right now for the agency, which new leadership is trying to roll back that rule. So there are many ongoing issues in consumer finance. I would say some of the biggest markets have improved quite a bit. Others remain challenging for consumers. Debt collection and credit reporting remain challenging markets for consumers that aren't, aren't all that visible to many consumers in terms of how they work, but they affect people greatly. And so that's that's an array of very different reactions to your question, sure, depending sure. on what we're talking so the, about. So there will be enough for the uh, agency to pay attention to uh, going forward for, for some time, it sounds like. I think for I, as long as we have an economy with consumer finance, yes. <laughs> now, some might say what we really need is uh, better financial literacy, that if consumers just didn't take on so much debt that they couldn't afford, that that would really be the 
solution to the problem. What is the role for financial literacy versus regulation in addressing these problems? Is, is financial literacy something that we really can rely on? Financial literacy is definitely part of the solution. The stronger consumers are, the more able they are, the better able they are to look out for themselves, the less need there is for protection and regulation to support them. But it, it is far from a panacea, and it is much more difficult than it might seem on the surface to achieve broad financial literacy across the country. Financial education is not something that is required for the most part in school of children. And if they don't learn it in school, then we're assuming they're going to learn it at home. And yet we know that many people struggle with the challenges of the financial marketplace. And if they're struggling, then what kind of lessons are they passing on to their children? We also know that in the home, finances are often a very sensitive subject and a sore spot for people. And they may or may not feel comfortable discussing their finances with one another and let alone with their children, particularly if their finances are a source of anxiety or problems. They may or may not be comfortable having rational discussions about how you would go about managing your finances when you get older and are out of the house. And whatever we end up doing in schools, and we certainly should be doing more, and this is something we tried to stress at the Bureau, but we did not have control over local school districts around the country, so we were jawboning more than we could mandate anything. Mm -hmm. There are always going to be, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Americans who are out of school and not going back to school, and they are in need right now. So what we can do in terms of better financial literacy through the workplace or through churches or other societal uh, groups is all of those things need to be done, in my view. Will they solve the problem entirely? No, I don't think so, because the consumer marketplace is complicated. And I don't think any of us, even the most well-informed, fully understands all of it. You know, I used to say when I was the treasurer of Ohio and overseeing billions of dollars in state revenues and state inflows and outflows. Did I have a full grasp in my own financial life on exactly what kinds of insurance I should have and how much of them? Was I saving the right amounts for retirement and making the right judgments and having the right expectations around that? I think some of these things are very, very difficult for people, let alone all the many ways in which they're trying to manage their budgets on an ongoing daily basis with their purchases. And certainly when you look at the uh behavior of banks and government officials in the lead up to the financial crisis, we know that even very sophisticated <laughs> folks who know a lot about finances missed a lot of calls there and made some poor judgments too. I want to close with just a question to reflect on your uh, tremendous uh, service to the nation and to your state in various leadership positions, both as the inaugural director for the CFPB at the federal level, as attorney general and other important positions in Ohio. Could you reflect on your public service experience and offer some advice to young people who may be listening? Some of our students here at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, for example, who may be interested in or thinking about whether government service should be part of the careers that they pursue. Yes, I feel actually quite strongly about this. I think it's important for young people and and not so young people to think about 
the possibility of engaging in public service themselves. It matters enormously what kind of people are in these roles. These are leadership roles in our society. They are decision-making roles, which will help set the direction of public policy and therefore of how how our society evolves, how we treat one another, how we how we address, understand, and respond to problems and concerns that affect people. And I think that's incredibly important. If you're not necessarily going to be engaged in public service yourself, then it's important that you have an understanding and a respect for those who do. And that can be difficult in eras where the political world seems topsy-turvy, as many people might feel is the case right now with the Trump administration. Certainly when I was growing up, it was the Watergate era. That was not a distinguished era in American history for the quality of our politics. I mean, if it's just hard for people to remember and imagine this, but that was a time that within the span of just a few years, we had both a president and a vice president resign from office, leave office because of various criminal and corruption issues that they were engaged in. And at that time, I remember I, I had an interest already in government and perhaps in politics. And people would say to me, oh, you don't want to do that. That's, it, it's, it's not, a, not a good field and not good people. And my feeling was if we leave it to not good people, then you know, we, will, we will get what we deserve. And I think it's very important for people to honor and respect the challenges and the importance and, and the nobility of public service as, as part of the American system. It depends on strong citizens, and as you talked earlier, financially capable people to m manage their own lives. But it also depends on good leaders who will keep that link between the people and their leaders and be responsive to their needs and make sure the government is serving the people rather than serving itself, which it can easily do. Well, I want to thank you uh, for your public service and for your time here today on our podcast. This is Carrie Colonisi, the Edward B. Schills Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And I've been talking with Richard Cordray, uh, the first director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and a distinguished policy fellow here at Penn Law. Thank you very much. Case in Point, Great Minds on Law and Life, produced by the University of Pennsylvania Law School.